Okay, if you're, if you're hearing this, it means that you have delved back into the early episodes of the show. And whilst we really appreciate that, we just want to give a, I guess, a little disclaimer, Mateus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the early episodes, I was editing this whole thing on a very amateur platform, and we basically just recorded a Zoom call. So um, that's why the quality isn't, you know, awesome. Yeah, we, we didn't have proper microphones. We didn't have proper headphones. But thankfully, it's grown grown into something that's, that's fairly successful now. We were able to have proper equipment and hire people to take care of all that pesky um, audio side of things. But we just wanted to put this out there and let people know that if if you do check out the early episodes and the sound quality isn't perfect, which we know it isn't, please just jump ahead and listen to some of those layer episodes. I don't know if you've got a couple that you particularly like that people can start on, Matthias. Oh, I mean, some of my favorites are, of course, uh, the Howl episodes we did with the Ed Gamester or um, uh, the talks that we had with uh, Shane as well. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we've got fan favorites like Ina Selvik and all of Highland who joined us for an episode. Um, and Lisa Gedalia was one of my personal favorites. Yes, and Terry Gunnell as well has some very interesting talks with some really high-profile professors. So go check him out. And now we're just dropping names. Now we're just dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank you for, for starting out of the early episodes. And please do listen to them. We, you know, we put, still put a lot of love and effort into them. But you do have to bear with us on the on the audio side of things. It does get better as you go through the episodes. And, and I guess it's quite a... Some people enjoy seeing us go through that motion and go from amateur to a little less amateur, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I can't believe that we're on episode 10 already. It's It feels like it's flown by. It does. I mean, it's and, and I feel like it's going so well as well. So, I mean, this is just awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we've... We've been blown away by the success and the and the love we received from people. It's it's so much bigger than I expected. Yeah. Feels like it's feels like it's just yesterday that I was sending you messages, annoying you, asking you if we could please do please do this podcast. I have this really cool idea about an annoying uh, layperson wanting to ask these questions to an expert. Yeah, and no, I yeah, I I, I gotta admit, I'm I'm also uh, blown away by. Um, you know, just a positive feedback and 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 interest uh, that all of you listeners are taking in all of this. I mean, thank you so much. Yeah, it's un- it's unbelievable. Every time we get every time we get a new review, it really does pick us up. It's really exciting to read. It gives us that little bit of mo- motivation to keep going. I know I check check daily to see if we get any new reviews and new ratings. It's become quite addictive. Me too. Yeah. And that also reminds me that um, um, it, don't forget if you have questions for us um, about any of the subjects that we're talking about, you can always find us 
on you know the very social media like Instagram. You, you can just type in my name, Matthias Nordvik, and you'll find my Instagram profile. And Daniel, what's a, a good way to find you on Instagram? Yeah, so we're just at Horns of Odin. We're really simple to find. We're normally posting on there about the podcast quite often, spamming people with their uh, achievements or ratings, reviews. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think that's just a good moment just to say, if you do get two minutes and you do enjoy the podcast, please just take a moment to leave us a positive review and a five-star rating. It really does help people find the podcast, and it does kind of buff our egos a little bit too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you? Have you been up to much this, this week? Well, there's there's a lot of things happening right now. I mean, I um, so I, I mentioned earlier that um, I have been working on on a on a book, um, a, basically a children's book about Nordic mythology, and that's slowly coming to an end, and and real soon, you know, have a publication date and all that stuff for for everybody who's interested out there. Um, aside from that, I. Um, so, so of course, a children's book on Nordic mythology is, you know, a a, a popular book, um, which is sometimes easier and also uh, more fun to write than uh, the academic stuff that I also get into, and um, and that brings me to the other one that uh, I'm working on right now. I I um, um, I'm in the final stages of of editing and copy editing and so on of on my my research book. Um, that has, uh, uh, that, that's about, you know, uh, Iceland and how, uh, um, the environment in Iceland have had an impact on Nordic mythology in the Viking age. Um, so yeah, that, that takes a little time to, <laughs> to work with that stuff. <laughs> that's, that's a book I'm really interested in reading. I know you can't say too much about it and you've got to skirt around the issue but you've mentioned to me the the topic behind it and it's something i'm really really excited about and i think people are gonna gonna love it yeah i mean it's it's basically like vikings and volcanoes like what's not to like <laughs> two pretty cool things exactly and yeah aside from that i'm also um starting the process of another book that's going to be um you know about uh also true the nordic neo-pagan spirituality um so so yeah there's a lot of things in the work right now and aside from that you know i also have my day job <laughs> yeah teaching people this this stuff already so you're a busy man you're almost as busy as i am oh yeah you have no idea i hardly even sleep <laughs> or no eat. i bet i bet yeah it's been a it's been a pretty busy week for us as well we were lucky enough to announce that we've we've just sponsored one of the the world's strongest men tom Stoltman. He's a he's a big prospect for the future in in the strongman industry, um, and literally the day after we we announced our sponsorship, he he broke the Atlas Stone world record. Uh, I think the stone he lifted was two hundred and seventy two kilos. Oh wow! Which is <laughs> a to the American listeners that's six hundred and two pound, which is a, a phenomenal amount of weight. I don't understand how a human can lift lift a stone that heavy and put it over a bar. I think it's like four and a half foot they have to get it over that's crazy <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's a lot of weight so that was really exciting for i mean i've been a a lover of strongman since i was a, a little kid so that was kind of a, a pinch me moment when we got that opportunity 
Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I I used to uh, watch a lot of strongman competitions uh, when I was younger as well. Um, it's pretty amazing what those guys can can do. <laughs> yeah, I think to be honest, it kind of links really well to to what we do, or what we what the podcast's about because it's, there's so much of it and so much heritage of it in Iceland. Uh, they over there they seem to be have um, a ridiculously good bloodline when it comes to sports whether it's strongman or crossfit i know you know there's a, a couple of the girls who really dominate the crossfit world and it's it's kind of odd to see because it's such a small population but yet they're so dominant in these these sort of really physical activity sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the the culture for that stuff is also you know uh, pretty encompassing at this point. I I, I feel like it's always um, something that um, that has been prevalent both in Iceland and the rest of Scandinavia. But but it looks like it's uh, just exploded over the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, it's it's really good to see. I really like it. Um, and it just seems to be growing more and more. Mm-hmm. And hopefully if we can find a, a link between that and, and what we already do, then that's only going to be a positive for us, really. Yeah. <laughs> so how about Corona? Has uh, has this affected you yet? Have you stockpiled on toilet paper? <laughs> toilet paper, um, medical masks, uh, <laughs> bottled water. No. Um, I mean, actually, Colorado is uh, in a state of emergency right now. Um, that sounds more uh, panicky than it actually is. It just simply means that, you know, the, the, the state government is taking, uh, precautionary steps. Um, we have, I think, uh, I think the last count was 12, um, cases. And, um, I mean, yeah, that it, it's, it's coming. It's, it's here, so to speak. Uh, the question is, uh, like, do you panic or not? And and I I'm just like with you know interpretations of Nordic mythology, Viking history, and all of that. I always just advise caution. <laughs> you know, just chill out and be cautious about how you handle it. And I I think you will be fine. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone will hopefully be fine. Um, I th- I think it's just been. They say cautious and courteous to others. Just wash your hands, give people fist bumps rather than shaking hands, maybe. And yeah, we'll, I, I, I'm sure we'll all be hopefully, hopefully all right. I I think so. I I have a general confidence in uh, the authorities in various countries to be able to handle this mostly in a mature manner. Um, <laughs> so as long as people follow the 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 you know official guidelines i think everybody's going to be okay i think sometimes that's the issue though i know i was thinking earlier that if if say in the uk they they heightened the the, the risk and i said people had to self-quarantine for 14 days or, or whatever it would be mm. i just can imagine there's some people that i know or there's some people that i've seen around that they just they wouldn't do it they would just be like, "Oh, I don't need to do that," and and they would just ignore the advice and and think that they could do what they wanted. And I guess there's always those people around who who are going to do that. Yeah, yeah, there are, and I I know that Iceland is actually issuing fines and even uh, the possibility of jail sentences if you break quarantine. So I don't know. Maybe we should uh, take a <laughs> lessons from Iceland in that. Maybe. I, um, I, I don't know if we should go as far as, I don't know if you've seen what they were doing in China, which is in some cases they've been welding the doors shut 
on oh wow uh, oh, okay that's a little far so that's uh, <laughs> that's a uh, that's the very extreme of it but it shows how you know how serious this thing can can get or at least how how far it can be pushed i mean i'm not definitely don't advocate welding somebody in their house no, absolutely not. I mean, I, 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 as as usual, I I believe in um, being courteous and having empathy. And you know, if if you find that it's annoying that you'll have to be quarantined for uh, fourteen days, just remember that there are um, elderly and people with other underlying uh, health issues who can be really affected by this, and in worst cases you know, die from it. So, you know, keep those people in mind when you do your thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a brilliant point because you see so many comments about people saying, oh, you know, well, it's it only affects this small percentage or, you know, a lot of people die from the flu and, you know, if you're young and healthy, it won't affect you, which is, which is true. But if, you know, if it's your child that has, you know, an immune deficiency disorder or it's your grandparent or it's you then you would want people to be courteous. So I think people just need to remember that whilst maybe you are you directly aren't you know at risk, but maybe you not washing your hand might help spread it to somebody who is at risk. And you just got to kind of look out for each other and take care of each other. Yeah, exactly. So should we jump into the the bulk of the the um, the episode, which is the the, the main man Floki himself? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, Floki's a, definitely a really interesting character for me. He's one that I knew very little about. Um, I mean, even, I guess even through watching the TV show, I knew very little about the character. Um, I just watched watched away, and it wasn't until, I don't think it wasn't until we went to Iceland earlier this year in January where, you know, because he was such a prominent figure over there that we actually started to learn a lot about him, who he was, um, the methods he, he did, and how much of an important figure he really was in the, in the founding of, of Iceland. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, of course, the, the Icelandic uh, interest in Floki is probably a little more heightened than, than what the actual source material behind him uh, warrants. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, he is mentioned as one of the first uh, people to go to Iceland. So, uh, in... Um, in the the historical material in Landnama book and Eastlandinga book, uh, that would be the book of settlement and the book of Icelanders, we have these um, first uh, ex- explorations of Iceland mentioned. And the first guy is actually a Swedish guy um, whose name is Gardar, and he sails to Iceland and then he circumnavigates the island and then goes back to Scandinavia, according to uh, the legend. And from from him uh, comes the name Gardai, uh, so Gardar's Island, um, that according to the written sources was the first name the area was given. Um, second guy is Floki, and he sails from Norway. And according to legend, he uh, follows a raven. Uh, so so there might be a little is sort of a influence from from the biblical story of Noah following the dove and and that stuff. Um, And then he comes to Iceland and there he settles and builds a farm and he lets his cattle uh, graze in the summertime. And 
according to the story, there's so much, you know, game and fish and so on that, that he is like spending his, the entire summer just hunting and fishing. And, um, then comes winter. And the story tells us that, um, he realized that he didn't gather enough, uh, hay feed basically for, for his cattle. So they start dying off in the winter. And, um, then he decides, well, I'm going to have to go back to Norway because this is not working out for me. And um, the story goes that uh, just before he leaves, he, he climbs this mountain and he looks over this fjord that's iced over. And and then he's like, well, this is obviously Iceland. <laughs> and that's how Iceland got its name, <laughs> according to this legend. So he's really important in that sense that, that that he is the person who has given Iceland its name, whether or not he actually existed. Of course, we can never know with these written sources. Um, and of course, there's also, you know, uh, some some aspects of legend to his story as well. Um, but, I mean, if nothing else, he's, he's a significant uh, guy in that sense. Yeah, I think when we were there... Um, we went to the Saga Museum, which was a really fun place to go. And they, I think in there, the information they had was they took three ravens with him. Yeah. Um, and I think it was kind of, he, he his, when he set off, he let one go and it flew back to, to Norway. Yeah. When he got about halfway, he let it go and it flew up in the air and then came back to the ship. And then once yeah. he got a little bit further, he let the third one go and then it, it flew forwards to the to the new land, which would be Iceland. Yeah, and that, you know, also is a very typical sort of like fairy tale, folktale um, element, right? The, you have three birds right there and one goes, uh, you know, back. The other one, you know, stays and the third one um, goes ahead, right? Um, so, yeah, that that, tell, that suggests, you know, a little bit of um, uh, creative, legendary um, aspect to it as well. Can't help but thinking he could have just done it with two ravens, though. Right? <laughs> like, if one just goes up and straight back down, you could have just used two. <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting story. I mean, how much do we know legitimate, like, this is what happened, factual? You know, there was this this man who who came all like, the, about the first settlement to... To Iceland, is there any evidence that? Because I know, I guess, in my very limited knowledge, I just assumed it was one hundred percent sure that he existed. He was a real person, and there was no doubt in that. But I know I just picked up on you said that maybe he didn't, which makes me think it's about to get complicated. <laughs> it is. It is definitely about to get complicated. Okay, so well, I mean, we can go two routes with this. We can say, oh, this um, uh, this story um talks about a historical person um which is not Im- impossible but um we have to also consider first of all again uh, these stories uh, in landnama book um and in isanega book are written down um at least you know 2 200 years maybe 300 years uh, after they occurred, right? So that means that the story has lived on in the story about, you know, the settlement of Iceland in and of itself uh, has lived in, uh, in, in oral tales uh, for, for 
at least a couple of centuries before it gets written down. And that means that there's a lot of things that can be, you know, if we take like the kernel of historical truth, right, then you have to imagine that around it comes like this band, this ring of, of fiction, half-truths, uh, like reinterpretations in different ways. And it really depends on also how, like, what kind of scholar are you to, to, uh, when you, when you look at it, uh, look at this. Some scholars would, for instance, say, oh, this is all just like, like, more or less fiction that is written down in the medieval period. We can't really say anything about what happened before it was written down because we can't trust any of these stories. Uh, Personally, I, I'm, I don't believe that. I, I believe that, um, that a lot of this literature actually does hold sort of a kernel of truth. The question is just that how does it do that, right? And so let's, let, if we look at the story of, uh, of Floki, um, what things can we sort of like verify as like adding up to a reality? Well, one of the important things of this story is that it tells us um, a little bit about navigating to Iceland, but aside from that, um the the environmental conditions in Iceland that this person comes from Norway and then he goes to Iceland and then he realizes that conditions are different and this ultimately leads to the failure of his settlement and that is a very important story for people who existed back then right because you know say say you're somebody who lives in western Norway in uh, the early 900s, and you're thinking to yourself, mm, maybe I should go to Iceland, right? It is important for you to have a little intel on what kind of place you're going to if you're going to become a farmer there and settle and, and all of that stuff. And uh, a story like that might have been used in, in that way. And that's that's one of the, the sort of like truth elements to this, the early experience of the environment. Um, and, I mean, it also places the... The settlement of, um, or the attempted settlement of Iceland at, at an early stage, where we have, for instance, Stolvafjordur, uh, this site in eastern Iceland, um, that's from the beginning of the 800s. That actually pushes the settlement uh, in Iceland some 70 years back in time. The official date, according to, um, uh, again, to Icelandic book and, um, and also verified by uh, other archaeological finds. Um, for instance, uh, the house in downtown Reykjavik. I don't know if you you visited that one. It's like in the basement of a bank. But they there's a Viking Age house that they dug out um, where they it has a tephra layer. So you know, basically volcanic ash that has settled uh, on it, and they could date that house pretty accurately to. Uh, 871 uh, plus minus two years or something like that. And so that coincides with what Islendinger book is saying about when people started coming to Iceland. But then you have a new find, Stolvafjordur, in eastern Iceland that actually pushes the date back to, you know, the beginning of the 800s. And it is still, there's still a lot of things that need to be examined with this house. But it looks like the people who went there came from the Norwegian area. There's even indication of like Sami presence there. So 
it might not just have been sort of quote unquote Vikings or Germanic speaking Scandinavians. It might also have been Sami that were involved. And, you know, a legend about Floki could sort of like attach itself to that site. Um, because we don't really know if that site was a, it's like a stable presence or it was just a seasonal site or what was this all about? Is it, I mean, is it safe to say that I guess Reykjavik wouldn't be the first place for a settlement? The, the, I mean, for, for anybody who doesn't know the geography of, of Iceland, Reykjavik is on the, on the west coast. So I would assume the first landing would be on the east coast and you would, so is there any kind of settlement evidence around that area or I guess what, is there, I don't want to keep going back, but it's like, is there any evidence of, of Floki being a, like a real person, intangible, you know, physical evidence of this points to him being a, a, a real person other than kind of like the stories written down through oral tradition of being passed, passed on? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the case with most of these people uh, that are mentioned in the early stories. Like, so the, the person who is credited with founding Iceland is Ingolver Arnason, right? He comes after Floki. And the story tells us that he sails towards the eastern coast of Iceland, and then he sails southwards and comes around and into the Bay of Reykjavik. Like, um, and, and, and then he establishes himself in Reykjavik. So that, of course, means that there's that aforementioned house that's been found in downtown Reykjavik. Uh, there's definitely people who have suggested that this was his original dwelling or something like that. And that's just not, not possible to to verify it's not possible to verify that Ingolver Arnason was necessarily a, a, a real human um that existed um because you'd be you'd be <laughs> awfully lucky to find the only house and it'd be the actual first house <laughs> yeah but then again i mean you also have um references to his high seat pillars his unvegesuler um in later literature, uh, I think it's Ari Frodi, if I remember correctly, so the author of Eastlanding a Book, who says that you can still see uh, Ingolver Arnason's um, high seat pillars at his farm. Um, but, I mean, again, we can't trust that information. On the other hand, there's no, there's not a big reason to not trust the information. You know, it's 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 like... It's 50-50 on, on both sides, if you ask me, right? The, the important thing is, of course, that, that these stories, they say a lot about what kind of culture, um, you know, emerges in early Iceland. They say a lot about the experiences that these Scandinavians and British people have had going to Iceland. Uh, for instance, the high seat pillars, right? They're, actually doesn't mean high seat pillars it means something more like the spirit way pillars uh which could be interpreted as some kind of like you know maybe you want to think totem pole or something like that and and they use these according to legend at least to guide them to iceland which tells you that there's there's like a strong component of of the pre-christian nordic religion in the settlement of iceland it was really important to them um, it also means that the legitimacy of, of, of land claims is based off of religion 
and this original settlers sort of like communication with the spirits of the land, the Landweiter. And, and aside from that, it also tells us how they experienced this uh, settlement, this colonization of Iceland early on. I mean, whilst we're just on kind of like the, the founding of Iceland, now something I always see or hear is that when the, the Vikings kind of arrived there, that there was already like, I'm probably going to butcher it in some sense, but was it like a an Irish Irish monks or Irish kind of Christians who were who were out there spreading the word of Jesus, I guess. <laughs> to but, to but, nobody. <laughs> well, that that that's what I kind of find odd is is that you know I hear that there's that there's monks there, but then I think, well, why would they be there? Because there's nobody to, to spread <laughs> the word to. But maybe I don't know. Maybe you can clear it up. Probably yeah, so, not, because everything's complicated. Well, actually, this is this. Uh, seems kind of straightforward, actually. <laughs> okay, so first of all, it looks like that the early settlement of Iceland actually involved a lot more Gaelic people than we have hitherto assumed. If we look into genetics of the early population of Iceland, I believe it's almost a 50-50 split between Scandinavians and, and people from the British Isles. Just so, just quickly jumping on, on that point, is that thought to be that they went there separately or the vikings went to ireland and took because i know when i was i was there there was quite some stories about them taking slaves from or taking peoples from ireland to iceland is there any evidence of which way around it is or whether it's kind of like a, a voluntary migration there or it's a, a forced one i i think it's both i mean there's definitely slaves that are being transported but there's also people who come there on their own uh, free will do we even have that also in landnama book um, I can't, I can't remember his name, but there's one guy, for instance, who, who brings a church from, is it Scotland? Uh, maybe, maybe Scotland. I, I can't remember the story correctly, but, uh, but there is at least one guy who comes from the British Isles and he's named as a guy who comes from the British Isles. He brings, um, all the components of a church from the British Isles and goes to Iceland and builds that little church there. And, and I think it might actually be in Patricksfjörður, which is named after St. Patrick as well. And that name has always been there, which tells you then that these, like that these Gaelic speaking peoples probably also have always been there. There's, you know, suggestions in the saga literature about Gaelic people. Um, there's plenty of Gaelic names in, in the saga literature. So they, they, they were definitely there in one, one capacity or another. I mean, the problem with the saga literature is that it represents, you know, the, the Gaelic speaking peoples as, as slaves more than anything else. And that might have something to do with the people who are writing it in the 13th uh, century, right? These, uh, these people who identify strongly with Scandinavian culture and particularly with Norwegian culture. And are in charge, right? So, so it's, we're almost dealing with sort of like a Scandinavian supremacy, um, as opposed to, uh, a, a Gaelic minority. But with the genetic evidence, it kind of looks like that, that we had a 50 50 split in the beginning. And then that sort of gets less and less Gaelic over time. Do we know who was there first? 
And well, so going back to the story that you've heard, so this again comes from Ari Frodi in, in Eastlanding, a book where he says that there was these people called the Papar. And Papar seems to be, you know, a, a Gaelic kind of word for pastor or, or something like that, maybe Icelandified. And, um, they left, according to him, they left when this, uh, the Norwegians started coming over, but they, left behind, you know, uh, books and uh, crosses and stuff like that, evidence of Christianity. And that's the real reason that is in there. Because Ari Frodi is a Christian sitting there in the 1100s, writing his story about Iceland, and he wants Iceland to seem like it was founded with Christianity to begin with. And then we just had sort of like a little embarrassing, uh, you know, brief moment of paganism that came from Scandinavia and then they all converted and everything was fine. Right. <laughs> so is there any evidence of the like the books they left behind or anything to suggest that, that that's a true thing or rather than just kind of made up to explain away this this little pagan area? As far as I know, there's no archaeological evidence of, of, of Christianity um, before we have sort of like the official conversion in, you know, the year 1000 um, or, or around that period. There's uh, – it is, it is most, most certainly like, a, a, you know, to a literary scholar like myself, a very obvious ex example of somebody tampering with history <laughs> when they're writing down history. Yeah, I mean, even to somebody like me, um, it kind of it, it sprung alarm bells because I was like, why would there be, you know, pastors or preachers out there when there's nobody there? And it, it's kind of like, uh, it doesn't really make sense, but there's, you know, who am I to say? I don't know everything. Well, we do, we do have... You know, historians from from the British Isles who do mention, you know, Irish hermits that are, you know, traveling in the North Atlantic and settling there for solitude and, and such things. And whether or not that's true either, I'm not sure. Um, you know, um, you know, cautiously, I'd suggest what it looks like is basically that we have a typical natural expansion from the Br British Isles outwards in in the North Atlantic, uh, people settling in the Shetlands, the Orkneys, Faroe Islands, um, Iceland as well. I mean, think about this. The, the original settler, according to Scandinavian legends in the Faroe Islands, is Grimur Kampan, which is the word... Grimur, which means the masked one, and it seems to be like a name that is applied to a lot of people in in uh, Old Norse tradition that we don't really know. <laughs> like it's just like oh, um, the the unnamed guy over here, Grimur. Um, it's also an Odin name, and the other part of this guy's name is uh, Kampan, uh, is a Gaelic name. So the first settler, according to Scandinavian legends in in the Faroe Islands, is Gaelic. Um, the masked Gaelic guy or something like that <laughs> so so basically i think we could assume that that there is a that there's some gaelic presence in these north atlantic isles uh before we see the expansion of scandinavians in the viking age yeah so it sounds as if if there were you know if, if there was anybody in iceland it was most likely to be you know like the odd monk who had gone there for solitude um, rather than an actual settlement of, of I mean, people. 
I think it could be a settlement too. I wouldn't discount that. Um, but we don't have any archaeological evidence suggesting that. At least not yet. There could be found something in the future. I mean, there's even suggestions that um, the reason that Eirik Röda, the uh, Eric the Red, right, um, who, the guy who discovered Greenland, according to legend, that he went there because of Irish stories. So he had settled in the area called Breidafjörður. Um, and this is traditionally a, 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 an area that has, um, that was settled by, at least we su- assume that there was like a considerable amount of Gaelic people present there in the early uh, history of the Icelandic settlement. And so the suggestion is that he probably went west because he had heard legends. I mean, we also know that the legends of, of some kind of mysterious land to the west were present in Ireland um, long before the Viking Age. And you know what? It might be because somebody went there. <laughs> I would not discount that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's, the more we, we speak and do these podcasts, the more I realize how you know ambiguous everything is and how, how hard it is to put pinpoint anything as being 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the fun things about it, if you ask me. <laughs> oh, yeah, de- definitely. Yeah, absolutely is. That What you were just saying there reminded me of another thing that I picked up from the Saga Museum again, which I think hopefully you may know a little bit more about it. There was a story about a, a Gaelic princess. I guess she was the, the daughter of a Gaelic king who was taken to Iceland as a, as a prisoner. And when she got there, I think she then revealed who she actually was and that she was of kind of like Irish nobility and then was was kind of raised up through the ranks and then ended up marrying somebody of importance. Does that ring any bells or have I just picked something up? That that sounds like a, a several stories, actually. I mean, this... Uh, I So, it I can't pinpoint exactly which story this might be, but... I mean, it's, it's, it, that's like a typical, you know, medieval narrative of, of the princess or prince, um, that, it, that, you know, goes through all of these rough times. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're, they discover that this person is actually of high status and la, 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 la. Um, and, and we have several of these kinds of like saga narratives that tie, um, uh, some person into, for instance, uh, the Royal House of Ireland. And, and it's, you know, when it comes down to it, when you look at all of this, what it basically says is that we're dealing with a common North Atlantic culture. The Irish and the Scottish are part of this common North Atlantic culture. That doesn't mean that people aren't aware of ethnic, uh, ethnic dis- differences and probably also use them against each other on different levels. But it's a common culture where, where, where there's interaction in different ways and there's also mutual understanding. Um, and, and, you know, you, you can, if you're of a high enough, high enough status as a Norwegian earl or king, you can, of course, you know, marry your son or daughter off to the king of Ireland or the king of a certain place in Ireland or Scottish king and so on, right? So so in that sense, it's, um, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, it just looks to me like the, the, the Gaelic populations of the British Isles are generally 
more or less included as a natural part of the Norse world in, in the North Atlantic. Oh, perfect. Uh, just to, to drop back on to, to Floki, just so we don't get too far away from the subject, I guess the, the obvious question for me, and it might be a completely stupid one, I don't know, um, is the name. Is there kind of any link between like Floki and Loki, which is the very obvious question, and I feel like it needs to be asked. And the answer may be a simple no. Um, so, no, there's no, no direct uh, link here. Obviously, in the show, um, the, the, the creators of, of, of the show Vikings have, um, uh, well, they've, they decided to name him Floki first because, well, uh, there's the original settler um, in, in Iceland who botched the settlement, but nonetheless went there. Um, and then, then there's this, you know, uh, that that's also what happens with Floki in, in, in Vikings. And, and then there's the, you know, homo, homonymity or sound, uh, how do you say that? Um, the, the, uh, it sounds similar basically to Loki, right? And if you, if you look at Floki, the character in Vikings, I mean, he's, He's very much a Loki character, right? He's so they mold this figure who's very pagan, probably also a little schizophrenic. Um, like he, he like talks to the gods and, and, and all of that stuff. He's very creative and he is uh, tricky to figure out. It's hard to, to really discern his political alignments. Like, does he? Because he doesn't always side with Ragnar. Um, and then there are like specific scenes that are just taken straight out of Nordic mythology that have to do with uh, Floki. So, so they, the creators of the show, they've taken, they, they've taken Loki as a character in mythology and, and turned him into Floki, um, as a Viking. And actually, that's one of the things that I think is the most cool part of this show. Just like Ragnar takes on a bit of an Odin role um, throughout the show, Floki takes on the Loki role and becomes like this fanatic pagan, right? Yeah, the the one thing that springs to mind is definitely the scene that springs to mind is they almost treat the the, the killing of Athelstan, which is, spoiler alert, if you are all the way back there, um, basically they, they treat the killing of Athelstan almost as, as the death of Baldur, and he's, you know, he's he's put on the stone, and he's, he's the serpent drips the poison on his head, and that is a, you know, like you say, that's taken directly from the Norse mythology, which kind of led me to to ask the question as whether there is any any link, because obviously the names are undeniably very similar. Mm, yeah, and so if I may just go back to aforementioned Grimur Kampan, um, and. Also, the historical Floki in the legend, at least. I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that it's ravens that guide him, or a raven. Uh, that's definitely the tradition that infers a little dash of Odin in there, right? And as we have realized with Grimur Kampan, Grimur, his masked one, is also an Odin name. And there's a lot of Grimur 
in the, uh, the the Icelandic settlement. A lot of people who who have that name in different ways. A lot of people in the saga literature as well. And I mean, there is a possibility aside from you know that this name might be used for people whose identity is a little iffy. It might also like a, there might also be a dash of Odin mythology involved in all of this. We should not discount that. And that's just really interesting to consider because, as I mentioned before, these it looks like these early settlers definitely believed that they were guided to some extent by the gods, which is pretty normal uh, for for religions in general. That that people, you know, if you're going to sit on a uh, you know in a in a wooden ship for two to three weeks across the North Atlantic to settle on an icy shore over there. Maybe you do just want to be, have the backup of the gods, right? And so, so, so yeah, it's, um, there's definitely mythology involved in, in these early figures. And I think it's a, a reasonable call that, uh, that Floki in the, in the stories then, is also sort of like a mythological uh, figure. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to to one thing I think we said on a previous episode about you saying how the the nine realms almost existing on a on a single plane. So, you know, they they're all kind of part of of earth, just the different areas and I mean, we were we were looking up to be in Iceland, kind of, I say looking up and unlucky enough during the the winter and there was a snowstorm and it's, you know, I it was tough, even though we was in a house and in a nice car and in nice modern warm clothing. It was still a pretty treacherous place to be. You know, you didn't go wandering too far. So I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, a thousand plus years ago. And and when you you know, if you landed there in the in the spring and and stayed there all the way through the winter, the the change must is, is pretty drastic, and it's such a harsh climate that. It is almost like a godlike, godlike change, and and it's it's really. I'd I'd love to know what they thought of that and what their explanation was for this kind of, this real cold winter coming in. Oh yes, the eagle of the northern wind, <laughs> right? Kreisvelnir, corpse swallower, sits up there on the Arctic beaches somewhere far away from us. And when he flaps his wings, he sends these cold winds down over us. The eagle creating wind is is a very common theme, actually, in, in, in Old Norse literature in different ways. And it might have its origin in a sort of like a common European um cultural concept of of the eagle of the northern wind boreas aquilo as he is known in in the mediterranean area um but um but but I, the, this notion of like mixing the eagle with the with the harsh winds as ha- as as is what happens in 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 the north atlantic also carries this you know dread because what is an eagle it's a it's a bird of prey like um uh the eagle symbolizes uh, uh death in in many ways in 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 the old Norse literature it's also connected to odin again a god who's also closely connected to your death especially if you're a warrior right 
So that so there's there's definitely something going on there, and they definitely had that like they this, these early Icelanders they, they stand there they look at this uh, <laughs> this winter storm coming in and then they're like holy shit <laughs> this is a little different from what we're used to um, <laughs> yeah I think it's always so important to remember that if you were you know, we're talking about people who, who didn't have the same scientific understandings of what we have today and the reasons of why, you know, why a volcano erupts or what a volcano even is um, and why we get cold weather, hot weather, where these things come from. So it it's so obvious that they would explain them away as, as things that they do understand. So, you know, the wind is a giant eagle. The, you know, these things, they, they may sound really crazy to us now but that's only because we have such a good understanding of of science but back then i mean if i was back then i didn't know the things i knew now and somebody said you know the lightning in the sky comes from a god i'd be like yeah probably mm-hmm. yeah it makes sense i mean the thing the thing is that you look around um and and it's very obvious in folk tales and mythology and the saga literature that these people even when they had you know converted to christianity looked at their world as as something that was inhabited by spirits right um there there there's like spirits in these rocks over here there's spirits in the water in the sky everywhere around us and that's the same for you know other scandinavians it's it was also the case in the british isles and uh, all over europe um and it it only slightly goes away with christianity and and like not even during Catholic times is it a big deal to get rid of of these local spirits in different ways. That really happens in in after the Reformation. That's when it becomes a big deal. So that means then that you have the continuation, to some extent at least, of a, of like this traditional worldview. And and yeah, these these people they they saw their their world as populated by all kinds of spirits, and some could be good, some could be bad. Um, we can appease them by giving them offerings and so on. Um, and and yeah, that that was what they relied on in 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 terms of understanding the world, and especially also with you know storms and volcanoes. Yeah, I mean, I I genuinely, I can't imagine seeing a volcano erupt now and and the the fear and the kind of the 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 way they must make you feel as as almost nothing. It's it's you know the the effect that this can have on you and the it makes you feel almost. I was just just belittled in, in a sense that the the nature can just erupt and in an instance everything you know becomes becomes nothing and we kind of have an understanding of, of what a volcano is and why it erupts so so to them back then everything you you have and know and love could be could be taken in an instance from this kind of fiery molten rock that just spews out of a a hole in the ground and it, it must be you know wh- what would you th- what would you think that is unless you know i've obviously learned in school that a volcano is you know is this so when you don't know that and this happens what is the explanation other than uh, you've you know you've angered or pissed off a god and he's gonna you know throw down retribution on you and and what you have absolutely the most common it looks like the most common human way of interpreting something like that is that i pissed somebody off 
<laughs> That's really what happens. Um, I have looked at stories about like folk tales and mythology about volcanoes in, um, well, on every continent, actually, on the planet, <laughs> like in Asia, in, in Africa, in, in Europe, in South America and North America, um, in, in Central America as well. And, and of course, in, um, the, um, the ring of fire. So, you know, going from, you know, the American West to, um, all the way around, um, to, to Japan and down to New Zealand, right? And it is a very common way of thinking about, uh, volcanic, uh, eruptions as, well, this has something to do with some kind of trans transgression that we did as humans. Um, either like a moral thing or, um, you know, something that just, you know, happened out of mistake is also the possibility. But always some kind of transgression and always the interpretation that the earth is angry. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine what individual people have thought. I mean, imagine you and your... You and your wife are having an argument and she's screaming at you and then suddenly the volcano erupts. I yep. mean, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, I really pissed her off this time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you you don't know, like in these individual circumstances, you kind of attach what's happened to you and be like, oh, you know, did I do that? Did I not, did I not do something wrong? Did I anger the gods? Did I, you know, did just not live my life correctly? Yeah, exactly. And that that's that's typically how people interpret it. But yeah, I mean, um, so as Floki as a character, if if we want to get back to him, <laughs> well, I think we've got we've got a couple of questions on Floki that we'll we'll touch on. I think now and yeah. Um, so one of the first one was, did he have any sort of famous relatives? I know we've touched on him, whether he's a real person or not. But when it comes to the, you know the saga, the myths. Is he attached to kind of any any famous characters, whether it's father, mother, uh, siblings? And that comes from North Anglian. Uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, he's he's sort of like a a, a side character to the to the the general history of Iceland. He's he's responsible for giving it its name. Um, attached to this, there could also like so. This is the legend that tells us that this is how Iceland got its name. But I think a more likely scenario is basically that when you sail to Iceland coming from the east or the southeast, Vatnajökull, the Europe's largest glacier, is the first thing you're going to be seeing. So that's probably why they called it Iceland in, uh, originally. And that brings us to why they get named Greenland, Greenland. I mean, that if you sail to the southern part of Greenland, you will, at least in the summertime, see... Um, more or less green valleys, so so that's probably why these two uh, countries have those names. Yeah, I guess that's something that always comes up when you look at a map that I must have heard so many times. Is why would you call Iceland Iceland when if you look at it on a map it's green, and then you look at Greenland and it's mainly kind of icy, and people are like you know didn't they get it wrong? Why is it named that way? Sailing directions. That's another thing. You know, think think about having to navigate the North Atlantic as a sailor, regardless of how experienced you are. The things that you use are, um, you know, your common sense and the features that you have either been told about or experienced before. So, you know, if you sail 
um, from Norway, from Western Norway. It's a matter of like, which side do I want the Faroe Islands to be on, right? Um, to uh, on my right hand side or my left hand side, and also, um, how close do I want them? Um, you, if you're if you're aiming for Greenland, for instance, you you want the the sea to be halfway uh, up on the cliff side, right? That's the description. That's the actual description, right? And you know, if you're then when you come within, uh, you know, the area of Iceland, as you're sailing towards Greenland, um, the description goes: you you want to be so far away from Iceland that you only become aware of birds and whales, and and like other animals, right? And and then you just sail straight, and eventually you get to Korf, the southern tip of Greenland, which is green. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's how you navigate man <laughs> it's just so insane i mean can we just take a moment to appreciate how insanely brave or psychotic these people were <laughs> to to jump on a boat for you know like you say three weeks four weeks under the under the guise of something that somebody has told you so they've said look out for these landmarks or i've been here and there's this great land that lies ahead jump in your boat and go yeah and then somebody, exactly. somebody's gone you know what? That sounds like a good idea. It sounds like a nice place. Let's go find out and maybe die. <laughs> and maybe die in the process. I can't quite grasp my, you know, get my head around the fact that, you know, they were willing to do this. And but I'll be honest, if someone said to me, "Let's jump in a boat for for the next four weeks," and or let you know, in modern terms, in a spaceship for four weeks, and we can go to this amazing land that somebody once went to, but they haven't brought back any photographs or any particular evidence that it exists, but it's really good. And I promise it will be really amazing when we get there. I would probably tell them to go fuck off. <laughs> I, 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 I'm still undecided. I, 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 I might be more of a risk taker in that regard, but, but yeah, no, I, I get, I understand the sentiment if nothing else. <laughs> and that might be the first serious cuss word I've ever said on the podcast. <laughs> I think so, actually. <laughs> but no, I mean, that that also, if you take a trip around the Scottish Isles, right, the Hebrides and, and, and Orkneys and Shetland and the coastal stretch, the Western Scottish coastal stretch and so on, what you can find there are old Scandinavian place names. And they're typically the kind of place names that describe a natural feature. And that's, of course, because they use this area to navigate through. Whereas if you go to, you know, well, Yorkshire, where you are at, you can find the typical Scandinavian place names that, that have to do with like agrarian pursuits and industrial stuff, like settlements, right? So, so what you're basically seeing is like, um, two, two types of place names based off of, um, land and space area use, right? And that's how they navigate it. They use that. They use the stars, of course, also. They use the position of the sun and moon. They did not use that silly uh, crystal thing <laughs> that they use uh, in the Viking. I'm sorry, guys. That, 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 <laughs> the, little, the little stone that helps you see the sun. Is that what yeah, it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sunstone, that's what it's called. They didn't use that. <laughs> I think I might have actually bought one of them when I was in Iceland. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> they got me. <laughs> okay, the next question um, was 
how many settlers did Floki take with him? And is it mentioned anywhere? I guess, again, it's going obviously going back to the myth. Does he go alone? Does he does he take a bunch of people? Does he take family with it? And that comes from Moose Lady Passanine. Okay, so so this is the, the odd thing about these stories. They, they mention the guy who went there, right? The patriarch, typically. Uh, also a matriarch here and there. I think there are 11 women who are originally uh, part of founding Iceland as, as people who go there and settling, right? Um, it's not really mentioned if there's like more people involved. I mean, we, we would have to assume that his family is with him and, and probably like, so it's, also that's the thing. I mean, families back then are a broader concept. You're talking about a household. So, of course, these early settlers, like Floki and, and others, right? They would have been landowners in Norway, which means, or, or in Scotland or Ireland, which means that they would be prominent figures. They would have a household that includes servants, uh, extended family, slaves, and so on. And, I mean, all of these people would be on the boat if you are moving your household from one place to another, right? Um, some might have opted out, but but you would assume that they're all with uh, them. And so I would also assume that, that Floki brought his whole family and household with him when he went there. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's pretty obvious you can't sail one of those boats on your own. It's not something, it's a, it's a single-handed you know, adventure. So you have to assume that other people were there. He's just the one who took all the credit. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the same for the other, uh, what is it, 415 original settlers that I mentioned in the London Lama book. Um, they're, you know, the, the individual is mentioned. Sometimes there are, you know, a, some family sons or dads or granddads or whatever mentioned. Uh, sometimes a wife is mentioned and so on. But... But there's always like that singular focus on that one, uh, typically a patriarch, who takes land. Yeah, I guess it would be the the head of the household. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I know that you had a question on your end, which is, what impact did the Norse colonization have on Iceland and Greenland, and what green practices, if any, did they have? And that's from Scott South. Yeah. So, well, it looks like. Some of the things that we've found out with Iceland in particular, and it's still hotly debated whether or not Iceland had like these very lush forests that are mentioned in the saga literature. Um, but it is, uh, as far as I understand, verified that there were trees and that the early settlers cut them down. <laughs> so that there, there was at least some measure of like forest growth in Iceland, but the extent to which I'm not entirely sure of, and that was gone by you know after a couple of centuries. I mean, you only have to to walk around to notice that. I mean, a lot of things were made from from wood. You know, houses were made from wood. Mm -hmm. The churches would have been made from wood. The boats were made from wood. So the wood, I guess, has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, and, of course, with the, t uh, the type of climate Iceland has, it takes a long time, um, or a longer time at least, for uh, trees to grow back. 
And the type of landscape that you see now in Iceland is a product of the this early deforestation and then, you know, pasture um, practices that have, um, you know, um, existed there for a, a thousand years. And I just want to add a comment to this. This type of deforestation we see also in the British Isles. Um, I, I believe pre-Roman, pre-Roman British Isles were pretty deforestated. Um, the Celts, uh, had, you know, cut down most of it. And, and that's the same for a place like Denmark. I mean, back in the early, um, two, uh, the early 20th century, Denmark had about 2% forest. Now it, it's up to like 12% because, you know, regrowing efforts, right? And so, so, there's a considerable impact by people around in general when it comes to forests. And, and that doesn't, you know, what it, what it definitely means is that these, these early pre-Christian Vikings weren't, you know, don't seem to have been particularly aware of their impact on the environment. Um, which brings us to this other thing of like green practices. Well, I mean, they, they would have, to some extent, sustainable practices for farming, right? Um, one thing is, what do you know in terms of farming skills and pasture skills from Norway or other parts of Scandinavia or the British Isles? And how can they be applied to the uh, Icelandic environment and also the Greenland in- environment? What it looks like in Greenland is actually that we see early on they come with you know cattle and stuff. Uh, but very quickly they transition to uh, sheep and goats that can survive in the climate. And it is only the very rich ones that have a cow, not multiple, but a one cow, <laughs> right? Um, and aside from that, they also start hunting more and more. So they're adapting in the Greenlandic environment. Um, a, a quick note, by the way, it looks like the walrus was eradicated by Scandinavians in first in Iceland and then in the southern part of Greenland. And then um, because uh, this is not a theory that I've uh, seen expressed by many uh, historians yet, but my personal theory on on why we see the Scandinavian expansion to Iceland and Greenland and onwards is probably actually the walrus because ivory and the tusks. And first you go to Iceland, eradicate the, the walrus. That's, uh, that's something that we know now that the scientists have investigated this and found that, um, yeah, they were responsible for getting rid of or, or killing off the, the walrus there. And then we also see that in, in Greenland, they start going farther and farther north hunting for walrus tusk. And, I mean, this again makes a lot of sense. You basically deplete the resources uh, if you over harvest. We know this from the European history of whaling. Um, you know, most whale populations um, that that the Europeans have been hunting were, you know, pretty pretty far gone. <laughs> you know, in in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century and. Now, with conservation efforts, you know, some of the populations are actually have actually been coming back. Yeah, and I mean, not to not to defend deforestation or, or any kind of like eradication of any any species. I guess 
we kind of have to remember that, that it's not that they didn't know any better. It's just that I guess they lived in such a a small. The the world was very small. Like now we live in a, a very global a global community. We we can see things are happening all over the world, and we have a great great understanding of things. Whereas for them, it was just okay. Well, we'll, we'll we, you know we kill these few here, but there's always going to be more over there, mm-hmm. and then. We kill them ones, and there's always going to be more kind of like around the corner. And I guess that's the same with the war, same with the trees. So it's kind of, we'll, we'll, you know, we're just going to move somewhere else, and then, well, there'll be more there. And and you know, these are the people that believe in gods and 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 things like that. So there's always going to be, in their opinion, I guess there's always going to be more somewhere else. I, it probably doesn't even enter their mind that these things may actually become, you know, becoming eradicated. It's just probably you know they're not here anymore so let's go find them yeah i mean there's that these people at least didn't understand cause and effect in the same way as as you know we modern humans do and i mean there's plenty of modern humans who either don't understand or care about cause and effect in these regards uh so so it's uh, ultimately it's it's a very tricky thing for humans to to deal with their environment the one thing that we see, though, like if if we can talk broadly about humans and environment on a global scale, I don't know how to put this, but um, yeah, things die when we show up. That that's really <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, like look look no. at the megafauna. Like as soon as as soon as we have humans coming into uh, the Americas, uh, all the large animals die out because they're the biggest burgers, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean. I guess to a certain degree, you've got to look at you know their intention and and the and the malice behind it, because like I say, I I feel like they wouldn't be doing it on purpose. They're not trying to eradicate these things. They just don't know any better. It's like because they genuinely believe there's more somewhere else. But whereas modern day people and and kind of you know over the last hundred years, we know better. We know that certainly with some people, they know that what they're doing is. It's damaging to the environment. You are, you know, you're eradicating certain species, and but they just don't care. And mm-hmm. that I think that is the big difference here. It's that one 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 group of people just don't know any better, and it's just an unfortunate kind of consequence of what they're doing. But whereas you know, with modern people, you do know better. We know, especially you know, like with the oceans, the mass, the mass, sort of um, the mass netting in the oceans. We know that that's having a big a big damage to the to the sea life and you know we know cutting down the, the forest in in the amazon we know the effects are having and unfortunately there's people making a lot of money and they just don't give a shit about anybody else yeah yeah no it's that i think that's a reasonable thing to say i mean we can always you know suggest that they might have had some recognition of of their impact on the environment we see hints of that in in all kinds of cultures across the planet you know almost from the dawn of time but um, at least to some extent, if nothing else, then just like, you know, this, you know, stories that include, yeah, they're loose. They used to live these kinds of animals here, but now they don't anymore. That kind of stuff. Right. Um, I mean, that's the thing about humans. We're capable of reasoning in that way, but, but yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. These, these people probably did not understand the ways that these things connect to any, any particular degree. Right. But we do. And that's a that's a that's a fundamental difference. Yeah, I think that that's what makes what what we're doing now. And 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 I don't even like using the word we because I try to distance myself from from that. You know, we 
those, those people who are making the day obscene amount of money and who just really just don't care um they're just assholes in my opinion but that to me when you when you when you understand the damage you are doing and you don't care about the human lives you put in danger or the environmental issues or you know the the damage to to the animals then that's a that's a different type of evil when you understand it and you go you know what but this little bit of money and these extra zeros in my bank account are more than that yeah exactly yeah, I think that's the the perfect rant to to end <laughs> the episode on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there's uh, there was actually a question I was looking forward to, and that's uh, CB Alex Original who's asking, "What is your favorite book to read?" I, I was looking forward to that one. Can we ha- can we take that one just before we leave? <laughs> yeah, so in there. So so, what is your favorite book? Okay, well, I don't have just one. <laughs> so. My all-time favorite authors. Um, uh, so it's a tie between um, Knut Hamsun, a Norwegian author, um, very prominent Norwegian author, and the Danish uh, Johannes V. Jensen. Um, their literature is just, you know, in my opinion, brilliant. And um, But if I should perhaps like pick a single book that's my favorite to read, it's definitely... Uh, Mikhail Bulgakov's um, The Master and Margarita story about how the uh, the devil comes to, you know, early Soviet times Moscow. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> oh, Matthias, what are you doing to me? Because you see, you've given such a nice intellectual answer there. And, you know, you've named all these books in your perfect accent. And now I'm just going to turn around and be like, you know what? I don't even really read very much. And, <laughs> you know, I've maybe read, I like to listen to audio books. Um, I was a big comic book fan when I was a kid. So, hey, man, I guess, so was I. <laughs> I guess, does that count? And now <laughs> I don't know how I can compete with, with the, uh, the one that you just named. Um, I mean, like I say, I, I do prefer audiobooks. I'm very much of the learning of, of of kind of through audio. I'm not a big reader. It's not something that I've ever been able to pick up very easily, which is why I, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was because, I, you know, I, got, I learned so much from Jackson Crawford's videos and from those mediums because it's just a very good way that I learn is from kind of just listening Rather than reading, I I can read a page five times and sometimes wonder, you know, what what the hell have I read? So I mean, if if I do go back to like the comic book type of thing, I would say that like somebody like Garth Ennis would be my favorite writer. He wrote something um, like a story called Preacher, which a few people may have heard of, and he also did well, probably my favorite small comic book series of all time. It's one called Red Rover Charlie, which is about three dogs in a post-apocalyptic world. And these three dogs set out on a on a journey. And that honestly, that that little series, I think it's six episodes long, had me in tears, in bits, and I was I was torn up by it. So I'm gonna <laughs> have to check answer. that one out. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm reading that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's brilliant. Um and I mean people like Neil Gaiman with Sandman. Stuff like that, the real, the real classics. Um, but like I say, I'm not really a big reader. <laughs> hey man, there's no reason to feel bad uh, over that. I mean, like I, I am, you know, a nerd. <laughs> 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 I have, uh, I spent most of my life, 
you know, studying literature of various kinds. Of course, I'm going to have like some, you know, niche book from Russia that is my favorite, right? That's, that's a big difference from, you know, people who live, you know, normal lives. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, like, I, I always had a love for history and I, and I would put that down to the teacher I had at, at school. It's called Mr. Ainley. So, Mr. Ainley, if you're listening, you were a brilliant teacher. You are the reason I got into history. And, and basically, what he was a very good speaker. He, you know, he, he very rarely had you looking at, um, books and textbooks especially when you know you're kind of like 14 15 16 year old he would stand at the front he would tell you these amazing stories about all different periods of, of history and that kind of had me had me gripped so i took history at, at college and the first year was very similar and then it, it got very textbook heavy and i was just my head just did not work it didn't it didn't it did it, it, it I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I just wasn't the same, and I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit, and then obviously started to get back into with with the the North pathology type kind of area. Mm, yeah, I mean that, and like that's also why I I do podcasts, right? It's to to make this stuff available that I can read in books that people might not have time to read in books or may 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 not want to for different reasons, right? Um, but they want to still know things. They want to still learn, right? And so that's that's the mission right there, you know, to make this stuff available to to everybody. Yeah, I've, I've definitely found with with my personal experience when it comes to audio kind of audio books and, and podcasts, especially around North pathology and anything to do with this time period, is the pronunciation of the words. Because you know, if I try to read a book about you know let's say the poetic era i there's some of those words in there some of the names in there that i look at and they just do not make sense to me i can't figure out how to say them pronounce them and it kind of you kind of get to a stage where i guess in my head i kind of like read the sentence and go blah, 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 for a name and then i read a little bit longer then there's another name and i can like oh, let's skip past it in my head and it just kind of doesn't sink in whereas when you know you're listening to somebody like you who who fluently says, says these words and, and the names of the names of the poems and the sagas, it, it, it kind of just sits in there so much easier. Yeah. And I think, you know, audiobooks are an amazing invention. Like, you know, if you're a person who, you know, maybe you have to drive a lot for your work or something like that, right? You could be listening to the same pop song over and over on the radio. Or you could be listening to an audiobook. I mean, that's... I. I know what I would prefer in that regard, right? And that's that's a brilliant thing. Like, absolutely, yeah. I mean, when, especially with, like say if you if you're driving long distances, you can put pop a book on, or you know, there's endless podcasts you can get for free. The Naughty Mythology podcast is one of them, you know, and you can listen to us two talk to you for two hours. Exactly. <laughs> right on that. On that, let's let's wrap it up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's been a fun one. Apparently, I've learned that maybe Floki wasn't even a real person. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> I, 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 so just to wrap that up, I'd say that he, he, he's likely to be a real person. I, I, I won't take that away from anybody. <laughs> no, I, li- I like that. I think that's a new segment we should do where you wrap up what we've, uh, what we've learned. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. We should definitely do that. 
Yeah, just some, maybe just take a few seconds to summarize it, I guess, because we do go through through yes. a lot. Yeah, so, so the summary of all of this is that, well, Floki could have been a real person. Um, the story that we know from, um, from, or that we have, some of us at least have seen on the Viking show is like this mix of, of, of that, you know, very brief hi- historical background from Landnama book and Eastlandiger book about Hrapna Floki, this raven Floki who follows a raven to Iceland. And then his settlement fails and he names it Iceland. Um, that, that has been adapted to a figure in, in the Vikings TV show. And that figure has a lot of like Loki mythology involved, right? And, uh, he is a Loki figure in that sense. And yeah, um, aside from that, my personal opinion on the way that they have treated that character is that I think it's pretty awesome. I think that they're very, uh, that's like a, a great narrative for, for that figure. Um, on, there's one thing maybe that this whole like fanatic paganism thing that he, he pulls off in, in Vi- the Viking show. I, I don't think I, I, I like that, you know, in the representation of how people might have believed in the Nordic gods, but that's, that's, you know, that's a matter of taste as well. So yeah. Perfect. Let's end it on that. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you all for listening. Right, that that basically emulates what kind of scenario you would see those chieftains and kings in before they converted to Christianity. So so I'm I'm very sure that um, that a guy like Rollo and before he converted he he would have been inspired to to do and think uh, the things that he did and thought um, by by the mythology, right? That's also what the whole point of skaldic poetry is. You you you're a scold, you compose praise poetry for a king, and you lace that uh, um, praise poetry with Nordic mythology and references to gods and giants and all of that stuff. So it was part of their whole world. Like this was, this was their way of thinking, basically. Which also means then you have to ask, like, wow, uh, how did they manage to? Uh, you know, convert to Christianity that quickly. <laughs> but hey, I guess land. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, when someone offers you something you want, it's it's funny what people will do for it. Right? <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a, a good place to leave it. It's. I think it's been a long episode today. Hopefully people have found it very informative. I find Rollo to be a very kind of intriguing character because of his dynasty and what comes comes after oh he certainly is definitely very interesting figure and um and i i find him incredibly interesting because of the all the ties that he and his family seem to have across you know the channel and across the north sea as well in so many different ways perfect yeah so let's let's leave it there and we'll be we'll be back next time yeah thank you all for listening thank you very much see you later
saying less um yeah. <laughs> and so on. I think that we, we're, we're going to get better and better. I think I think our chemistry has definitely improved as we go along and hopefully we're getting to a nice flow of things. And we, I think we're going in the right direction anyway. I totally agree. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank, yeah, thank you very much and we'll see you next time. they show up on the shores the linguistic differences between the languages that are being spoken by these angles and saxons in in england um and then the scandinavians aren't that big they would be able to communicate with one another it's not like what we see in vikings where they're like oh i have to learn your language it's more like oh you speak my language but it's broken <laughs> you know so so they're much more you know similar than different <laughs> yeah so i mean so they already knew that the britain was there the it wasn't a case of like i guess if anybody's watched the show vikings as you as you just referenced <laughs> in the first episode i think ragnar has like his little stone and it, it's almost like they're a discovering of a new land yeah no, um, no that's kind that's... of how it's made out to be it's you know it's it's it's, I've got this stone, it lets me go, you know, sail, sail to, to, to a different place and then we've discovered this new land that's, that's, that's got wealth. And Yeah, no, we have pre-Viking age um, Scottish artifacts found in Norwegian graves. So there's there's communication across. Um, yeah, there's, they, they know about each other and to some extent there are relations too. And, um, and that, of course, then, of course, should tell us that when when we when we see them in the source material um, talking about each other, um, especially the Saxons talking about these Northmen or Danes or heathens, as they usually call them, as uh, um, when they talk about them as, as something that they don't really know or understand, um, that's political. It's it's because it's because all of these people showed up and and started conquering stuff. That's why we don't like them. It's not because we don't know who they are. It's not because they they are like in fundamentally different from us. You know, they're probably you know, they are very certainly primarily pagans, right? Um, and and uh, we're dealing with uh, English kingdoms uh, that are Christian at this time. But nonetheless, aside from that. We know pretty much who, who we're dealing with here. We we know that that oh these these guys are the ones who are doing the same thing as our you know ancestors that we saw the light and became Christians instead, and and that's the main difference between us. And then the fact, of course, that they kind of seem to want to conquer stuff at this point. Yeah, so it's not it's not just some new some new race of people that have never been seen before that. Are, giants and swinging these giant axes around and <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> and and the other thing is that you know this it is what we can see is also when we look at you know the prolifer the proliferation of artifacts in trade ports 
in Scandinavia in this period, in the Viking Age, when we can see that there is a drop in trade, that's when we see, you know, warfare intensifying. So what we're really dealing with here is, is, you know, local chieftains, rulers, and so on, trying to maintain a steady income. And if they can't get that from trade, then they get it from warfare and conquest. That, of course, then begs the question, what is the Scandinavian motivation for going, you know, to the British Isles particularly? Because that is something that they do. And, it, I mean, you, you can see this from all the Scandinavian place names scattered around the, the English countryside. Uh, there's there's a, a very big influx of Scandinavians in this period. It, they're probably just doing exactly what their cousins did. Uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes that came from southern Scandinavia and northern Germany. Uh, these later Scandinavians, 300 years later, 400 years later, they they know what's up. They, they're like, yeah, let's go do what, uh, you know, those you know, distant cousins did some, some several hundred years ago. Let's uh, just, you know, go colonize. <laughs> yeah, let's go take some, take some wealth. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe, maybe they they even expected you know a friendly greeting. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, you don't. I mean, <laughs> you don't know. I mean, you again. You've got to remember it's a different time. There's there's no internet. There's no kind of like let's just see what's going on over there. Let's message our our friends who who moved to a different land. You, they have no. They probably have no idea what they're ultimately going to find. No, and um, I mean, they, they, all they know is reports from uh, traveling merchants, right, that are coming through the area. And and if some traveling merchant says, you know what, there are these you know awesome places where uh, they have a bunch of gold and they have no guards because all they do is pray to some god we don't know anything about, then of course somebody's going to say, well, that's an easy target. That's my sitting duck right there. Let me shoot it. <laughs> well that, that that's it that's i mean let's go make a name for ourselves let's uh let's go take some gold yeah exactly what is really interesting is of course this concept of the dane law that's then being established right and um because we, we then have a treaty that is being settled where we sort of like define some kind of uh weird boundary uh, between where scandinavians are and um where where the uh, Saxons are. But the thing about this Dane law is that we can't really find any really solid evidence for actual legal concepts that are specific to the Dane law and also similar to what we see in Scandinavia. So, so it's not like, you know, this is quote unquote Danish law that rules this area. Um, it's more something that, that has to do with um, ethnic distinctions, perhaps, because we see, you know, in times of political turmoil, the, the difference between Danes or Northmen, as they are also called, and then Angles and Saxons or Anglo-Saxons is being invoked, you know, again and again. And we also have, you know, genocides, um, it, it attempted exterminations of Scandinavians um, and then retaliations as well. And that is where things really start to in integrate in the beginning of the thousands. And then, of course, what we already have at that point is an integrated elite, right? We have a English 
Scottish to, uh, even, and then Scandinavian elite that is being more and more integrated. And that's, of course, also part of where Normandy fits into the picture, right? Because what do we have in the beginning of the thousands? Well, we have Knut the Great who manages to take over, um, what is it, in uh, 10, 16 to 18, he's, um, he's waging war and then he gets elected um, in the Wheaton as king of England. He's more a king of England than he's a king of any Scandinavian country, even though we Danes love to say that he's a Danish king. And then, you know, um, uh, some 40, uh, no, 50 years later, we have, um, we have Willem the Conqueror showing up. And who is Willem the Conqueror? Well, he's a cousin of, of these guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, I always, um, I always find that quite interesting because my... My kind of like lineage goes back to the to the Normans, so it's always been my little sneaky way of being like, oh well, you know, because <laughs> of the Vikings, so there's a link there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's always uh, there's always a way to link back to the Vikings one way or another. Yeah, and 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 that's that's again like if we go back to the example of the Goths, so we have these um, Vikings that go to Normandy, get land. And then, you know, start speaking f some kind of French. And they, they use their own terminology for certain things. Uh, several, uh, you know, maritime words in French, and especially in Norman French, um, are direct descendants of, of Scandinavian, the same in English, right? When, when the, the, the whole thing goes down at Stamford Bridge, right? What do we have? We have Harold Godwinson, the so-called last Anglo-Saxon king on the one side, and we have um, um, Harold Hardruler, a so-called Norwegian king on the other side. Why is Harold Hardruler there? Well, he's there because he's got a family tie claim to the throne. And Harold Godwinson, as much as he is Anglo-Saxon, his mother uh, is Scandinavian. And then, you know, Harold Govinson is lucky enough to defeat his cousin <laughs> or distant cousin. And that's when his other distant cousin then shows up, what, eight months later and, and defeats him at Hastings. <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a mess. It is such a mess. It is it's such a mess. But I, don't, I don't think we or anybody can ever strain it out completely. No, no, of course not. Um, but it's interesting, though, that, you know, when we talk about English history, Norman conquest is sometimes, at least, maybe more often than not, represented as some kind of like French invasion. Right? Yeah. But, but it's not a French no, no. invasion the, the, more than anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the Vikings got us one way or another. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> and that's <laughs> when... A, I think our, you know, our histories, our our DNA is 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 locked together. No matter how you how you look at it, whether you're you're English or you're Scandinavian. Oh yes, yeah. you know our the histories are just entangled for forever. I think you're right about that. <laughs> right, I think that's a a good place to to wrap this up. It's been a I think it's been a long one, but hopefully we we straighten out a few things, a few. A few words that, that people get thrown about and and hopefully straight out for, for going forward so people have a better understanding about what all these things mean. I know I certainly do. 
Well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that you do. I, I, I hope uh, um, your listeners are bear with me uh, yeah. <laughs> as I no, go on these long rants. And no, they trust me. The messages we get, they, they definitely enjoy. Enjoy that's, the long rants. That's that's wonderful. If nothing else, you can always pass. Okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so going forward, we we we're going to try and commit to two episodes a month on the first and the fifteenth of every month. So just try and get a bit more structure. Try and get a bit, a bit more regularity to it, so you guys know exactly when we're going to be releasing the next episode, so you can anticipate it. Absolutely, yeah, and and we love those uh, listener questions. So um, we're we're going to put in a segment at the end of uh, each uh, episode from now on, where we take questions um, that uh, Daniel will uh, uh, pick out of a hat or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure I'll advertise them for on our Instagram, and we'll uh, we'll make a list. You know, yeah, do a couple each each show. I think that'll be fun. Yeah. And basically, yeah. I mean, if anybody has has any feedback for us, any anything you'd like us to add, or anything we, we could alter or do better, feel free to let us know. I mean, pos- positive or negative feedback is always the best way to learn. It's we're we're not going to get upset if you say, you know, we like the show, but maybe if you did this, obviously, please don't just come at us and be like, you know, it, it's it's shit. Stop doing what you're doing. But you at least, you know, it, yeah, you, you guys are terrible. Like at least, you know, if you, if you come and say, you know, start out with something nice, maybe we enjoy the show. But and then and then you know, just let us know what we could we, we could maybe do better, what we could change. We we we're both learning at this. We're both you know trying to do try to pick up as we go along. We certainly are. I want to yeah. thank everybody who has been listening to this uh, episode. And I am looking forward to hearing your comments and feedback and questions in the future. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's been a long one, so hopefully you've all all enjoyed it, and we will we will see you soon.